0: Hey guys, Michael here. Happy New Year. First, to our supporters on Patreon, I want to quickly say thank you for helping us achieve our first goal of passing 200 patrons. You guys are the best. We love all of you. As promised, we're starting to plan our patron-only live movie night watch-along. We'll be posting updates about that on Patreon in the coming days. I also want to do a quick intro for this episode. This episode is a conversation that Brian and I had in December with some of the writing team behind the video game Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order from developer Respawn Entertainment. As someone who is fascinated by video game storytelling, I had a ton of fun hearing about their work. We discuss how the process of writing a video game differs from writing a movie, what the casting process is like, the unique place this story sits in the chronology of the Star Wars saga, and so much more. They were very generous with their time, and I want to say a big thank you to everyone at Respawn who helped make this happen. The whole Beyond the Screenplay team will be back in the next episode discussing one of my favorite films, Children of Men. But for now, let's get into our conversation about Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order. Hi. Hi. I'm Michael, and welcome to a special episode of Beyond the Screenplay. Today we are talking about the video game Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order by Respawn Entertainment. I'm joined by part of the Lessons from the Screenplay team, writer Brian Bittner. Hello. And we have part of the writing team for Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order here. We have the narrative lead, Aaron Contreras. Hey. And game writer Megan Foste. Hi. So can you guys kind of, for people that haven't played the game, kind of quickly summarize what is this game about?
1: So Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order is the story of Cal Kestis, who was a Padawan uh, in the Jedi before uh, Order 66 and the Jedi Purge. So the game is set after Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith, and before Episode 4, A New Hope. And you play as Cal a couple years after the Fall of the Jedi as he gets recruited in this quest to rebuild the Order um, and, and sort of complete his training as a Jedi as he's being hunted by the Imperial Inquisition.
0: Awesome. Uh, Yeah. And so I love this game. It's really, really fun. Um, Spoilers ahead. We're going to get into all the things, uh, spoil the whole story because there's just a a ton of stuff to talk about as far as writing for video games and differences between writing for video games and film, um, kind of the the where it fits in the Star Wars timeline, I think, is really interesting. Um, but I was thinking maybe uh, to get started, just to get some background, uh, I'm curious how you guys got into writing for video games.
2: For me, it was sort of a, a happy accident. Um, I went to Georgia State University for film. Um, I didn't think that I would be able to be in video games. I thought you had to be a programmer, um, which is like kind of laughable now because there's so many different disciplines in video games, but I think it's a common misconception a lot of people have. Um, so I got an internship at Adult Swim. Um, I was writing for the website there. Um, and at that time, their website and their games team were the same because they came um, up kind of doing browser games. Uh, but the games team was getting more ambitious and broke off into its own team. They needed a production assistant. Um, and I ended up getting that role. Um, and then tested games for them for a while and started doing little bits of writing um, under the writer there. And... Uh, Eventually, got to a point where we had a developer called Trinket who was looking for a writer for their game Battleship Brigade, um, and basically submitted my work um, anonymously to them without telling my boss. Um, (laughs) That's fun. Yes, and uh, they ended up picking my work, um, and that's how I started writing that.
1: Battleship Brigade is a really fun game. You should go play it if you have. Awesome. The writing's pretty good too.
2: (laughs) It's fine. (laughs) the 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 rest of it is the better part. (laughs)
0: um awesome what about you Aaron uh
1: I've uh that's a very long story Uh, I'll give you the super short version I was into uh gaming from like a super young age uh and then I'm pretty old so uh there was these things called muds and mushes when I was coming up kind of in the early days of the internet which were basically text-based online role-playing games and I got really heavily into those and ended up getting my first job uh, in the game industry was was kind of writing and, and running one of those with a bunch of people. Um, so there's a lot of writing involved with game design, kind of just because of the medium, because all you had was text to describe everything. Uh, and then from there, I I kind of wandered uh, and, and worked as a barista and did a whole bunch of other stuff <laughs> until I finally uh, ended up back in the game industry, um, working as Quality Assurance on World of Warcraft uh, in the night shift. And then from there, I just stayed inside the industry and kind of worked my way up. And I came into game writing through game design. So I was a level designer and a content designer before I was a game writer officially, even though kind of my first job in the industry was was more writing based. Mm-hmm. It took me a long time to kind of make it there in AAA.
0: Gotcha. Okay. So that's sort of how you guys got into game writing in general. Um, what was the inception for this project?
1: So I came on board about almost two and a half years ago. I haven't even been at Respawn for two and a half years. Uh, as the narrative lead for the project, there wasn't a dedicated narrative role in-house for, for the game at that point. And I think it had been a Star Wars game for about a year, a little over a year. The team actually was working on a different third-person action-adventure IP for a while. And then it became a Star Wars game once once Lucasfilm and Electronic Arts sort of saw the potential of what the team was making. Um, so there was, a, there was a, a story outline when I came on board. Um, there was something already present, which our game director, Stig Asmussen, and our other one of our other writers, Matt McNovitz, who wrote for The Clone Wars, had put together. Uh, Matt is a contractor. He, he writes, he works with us externally. Um, so at, at, when I came in, we were really trying to get into uh, our last vertical slice of the game. So it was kind of our last demo before we rolled into full production. And everything's story was kind of coming on a little bit late. And this comes down to, you know, the complicated nature of doing a Star Wars story with Lucasfilm and, and kind of just trying to figure out what we wanted to do at that time. Um, so that's kind of where I came involved in the process.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. And Megan?
2: Um, so for me, it was, um, I've been here, it'll be two years in April. Um, so at the point in time that I came onto the project, uh, myself actually, and another person on the team, Adnan, we were the first hires for the narrative team under Aaron. Um, so we came in. S- late, like Aaron said, <laughs> um, and we were at I think b- version maybe ten of the beats at that point, and we would go on to maybe eighteen before right. starting the script.
1: So this is the the story beats, which are sort of like an outline of the game, and we worked through a, a, like a high level structure of what's what's the spine of the game going to be from a, a narrative perspective with Lucasfilm before we really rolled full on into story production um, and as making. So there was a lot of versions of that document. Yeah. Gotcha.
0: Yeah. Cause so that's, you know, I'm obviously very familiar with how movies are made and there's sort of like preset roles that have been established for years and years. And so, you know, the screenwriter does, does this and producer and blah, blah, blah. Um, so yeah, I'm curious, like, what does narrative lead mean? Like, what does game writer mean? Like, what does it mean to write a video game?
1: I don't know. I think there might be one other person in the industry that I know of who has the title of narrative lead, and they're also at Respawn oh, <laughs> on, the, on the Apex team. Uh, basically, I own or I'm responsible for uh, everything narrative inside the project. So I report to the game director, who's sort of the showrunner uh, equivalent for the video game. Okay, um, And everything story and narrative kind of goes through me and my team. So so the cinematic team reports up to me, the writers report up to me, and the narrative designers report to me. And we have narrative designers. That's a, another title, which is very... Uh, unclear depending upon studio by studio what that means. Sometimes a narrative designer is effectively a writer. That's their their primary skill set. Here we try to define that as a game developer like a a system designer or a game designer or a content designer who's working on things with a, a purely or primarily narrative focus. Um, so an example of this would be the companion character, BD-1, your little buddy droid. Mm-hmm. We have a narrative designer owning BD-1 because he's he's a character who's being realized in the world. So narrative kind of owns that system uh, compared to combat or level design.
0: Interesting.
3: Yeah, I think that's one of those interesting things with games is film tends to be someone writes a screenplay, then that screenplay gets turned into something. And sometimes the person who wrote the screenplay isn't even involved, whereas obviously with the game you have game design and storytelling, narrative and dialogue and combat, it's all sort of being developed at once. So like, what is that like from the, um, you know, from your perspective, sort of that collaboration between the des- level designers and writing and all that stuff?
1: It's kind of everything from our perspective. Uh, yeah. And it's maybe one of the primary differences and uh, between, you know, linear media, whether it's television or film, or even stage and and a video game, um, because we only have partial ownership over the experience uh, even though you typically have a director right in a film who's who's kind of like deciding what happens and and how it happens, that script is sort of the blueprint for everything that is being realized in the world right. and that's just not the case mm-hmm. in video games because you have the player there deciding what to do and if if you're inside interactive content right um, and we want to have as much of the game be interactive and have the player involved with that as possible because that's sort of the 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 possibility space and opportunity for our art form compared to linear media. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's the, that's the whole thing right (laughs) there is that relationship and and that process.
2: Yeah. It has to be highly collaborative. Like an ego can really kill something that you're trying to work on. Like Mm -hmm. you need to be the kind of person who's willing to be, flexible and like even if you don't agree with whatever the other person is like trying to do necessarily you do need to kind of hear them out and understand the point they're trying to get to because generally you can kind of find a point in between where you're both very happy with the end result but when you have people that are like stuck in too much <laughs> um, it can become really difficult really fast to actually do either uh, department a service
0: so what does this like collaboration look like because so you're they're designing the game and the gameplay while you're writing the story. I'm assuming like, how is it just ping ponging things back and forth? Are there decisions that are made because of, you know, level design that affects story and vice versa? Like, what does that, that relationship flow look like?
1: It's super organic and I couldn't define it as any one particular process. Yeah. It also changes depending upon, uh, team by team, project by project, even individual by individual. Um, so, so myself and like the lead level designer could get together and have a conversation about something, but that our flow and our process is not going to be the same as myself collaborating with another level designer or Megan collaborating with a different level designer. So it's all these different individual conversations, um, which we've put sort of a structure around. So there are some, you know, meetings that we have and we we make an effort to try and line up. Um, but it just comes down to really one-on-one communication and then you're also involving art as well, and, and effects, and other course, departments. Yeah. So, um, I don't want to make it seem like it's just these two people that need to communicate. Yeah, enough, yeah, so yeah. usually a whole team. Yeah, that, that's it's, really good, sorry. No, no, it's just rolling chaos is yeah. the way I thought. Yeah, started. yeah. I feel like that's really
3: important though, because that helps keep it. You know, I I love that you use the word organic. So it's not just like oh, we have a spreadsheet and then we fill out this, and then the other person has to take that and do it. You know, which that's helpful for structure, but it's just it's really nice to say okay, we just sat down and we chatted, and you know, and and agreed on what we wanted to do and then we just moved forward and I think that 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 just feels really refreshing to hear. (laughs) Yeah,
1: I've worked on teams that have been like so I worked on Assassin's Creed 4, Black Flag and that team that was not Assassin's Creed 4. If you look at like all the releases they've done it was maybe like 8 or something. Right. So that group even though it wasn't the same exact core team that had made Assassin's Creed 1 there was a process and a system for how they did that which made that much more uh, methodical stepping through the process of developing the game at the same time, oh, you know, and we'll do this eventually too, your process will calcify and there kind of will be a way you do things which limits what you kind of can do or, or what you see as being possible on the team mm-hmm. uh, where, you know, Fallen Order is the first game that this team has made together. So we're kind of coming to it new and, and even Megan and myself haven't even been here for more than a hot minute, right? Mm-hmm. So it's very, very wild and chaotic right now.
2: Yeah, we're still figuring it out for sure. But I think that's kind of the the nice thing about it is like, um, now that we do have that experience together and we've all like shipped something together, it becomes a lot easier the next time to be like, oh, OK, here's where we kind of went wrong last time. Like, let's fix this a little bit earlier and like talk about things a little bit more because um, communication really is key when when you have that many departments involved.
0: Yeah, it really does. Like you were saying, Brian, it feels like refreshing. Like after having you know my mind stuck in the filmmaking ways for so long, like the rolling chaos sounds like really fun because it, like you're saying, there's. If you're doing it for the first time, you don't know what the limits are. You don't know what you can't do. And you're not kind of already cutting yourself off, I imagine. And so, yeah, I'm curious, have you you guys written for more, like you were saying, like linear media, like film, TV, like were you writing other kinds of media and then came to video game writing and if so like what what has what has been the biggest difference do you think for you in that process
1: i've only ever wanted to make video games artistically so i've never tried or done anything else. <laughs> cool
2: i've never done anything else professionally so except for like some website writing and things like that so i don't have like a professional or super informed opinion what i knew from school, um, there was a lot of um, important sort of put on this Auteur theory and this idea of like the single creative point of view, which I hated, <laughs> um, <laughs> like super much like the whole thing that was really exciting to me about video games was the idea of working on a team of people and collaborating together. Um, so it's been really nice to, to have that. And I think the longer I spend in my career the more I realize that I was super right about that and like people who want single creative control over things are generally the absolute worst people to work with
0: (laughs) yeah you know we've talked to a couple uh game writers recently and every time I hear about this collaborative process it just makes me wish film was done that way and it it, it kind of feels like a tv writer's room which I think is more collaborative Mm. um but so I so I'm curious like when you're actually on the ground, like day to day, what does this collaboration like look like? And I guess maybe, so jumping back a little bit, big picture when you're designing a story. So when you're designing the story for Fallen Order, do you start big picture, like you're saying, is it beats and like figuring out macro level stuff and then drilling down or, yeah, what's that process Right, like, like is
3: it like, you know, in a film, it's like, oh, here's our three-act structure and here, you know, the beats and blah, blah, blah. Is it that or is it more just
1: sort of here's
3: here's what we want and then here's what happens in between those, those points?
1: We are not a narrative-driven studio, mm-hmm. so the process of developing the game is not coming to the table from narrative saying, here's our three-act structure, here's the story we want to tell, now let's develop a game around that. Um, it's usually a bit more driven by um, design and art and narrative and other departments kind of simultaneously throwing ideas at each other. And then we start kind of the the limbo dance of how we're going to make this work. Um, so there's usually uh, a number of ingredients that come in like, design wants to do an ice planet, or we're going to have this feature in the game, or uh, Lucasfilm really wants us to go to this location if it's a Star Wars thing. So So there's things that the box is being defined, not by the narrative team. Um, I'd say we're, we're a part of that. We're part of defining the box, but we're just one part of it. Mm-hmm. And then from that point forward, we're constantly looking and reevaluating at what's the story we're telling. Cause we are going to try to apply like arcs in a three act structure, or some sort of formal structure to it um, to, to generate a satisfying story for people. Uh, but the pieces keep moving throughout development. So maybe something will get cut or something will get added, or you'll think you'll have four hours of content here and it ends up being two, or you mm-hmm. think you're gonna have one and it ends up being six so it's this kind of amorphous thing that 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 builds over the course of development, uh, in, until you you kind of like lock it down.
3: Right. <laughs> yeah. It's it's yeah. It's impressive because it feels like that shouldn't then make a game that feels like a strong narrative. It almost feels <laughs> like that's like a recipe for disaster of just like oh now we have to like paste this together into a story. But I mean, you guys nailed it. Um, and and then not only are you combining all those things. I also love that it sort of feels like it's all Star Wars in this one game. Like, the game feels like this very coherent thing, but it references the prequels and the original trilogy. It feels like the original trilogy, which is what everyone wants. Uh, and uh, Rogue One, obviously, and even, like, I, I got a little Last Jedi from the uh, Force-sensitive, you know, children and, and that kind of thing, and I just thought it was, like, what an, Im- what an impossible task, basically, to take something that sort of respects all of the different star wars movies but feels like its own
1: thing thank you that's really high praise uh we we definitely set up to do that intentionally where we were huge fans of of star wars and and kind of what that means Mm -hmm. Um, we just want to kind of bring that forward for for everybody you know uh who who enjoyed it in any any form right yeah yeah
2: and i think it was um good too that this idea of what Star Wars is was, I think, very different for each of us and very personal. Right. Um, and that's not just true of the writing team. That's true of the whole narrative team and really the whole team itself. Um, so we kind of were able to get a lot of different elements in there because we all had a different sort of angle that we were looking at it from.
0: Yeah. That's, all, that's yeah one of the benefits of collaboration. Um yeah. Well, and so, so as far as the actual story, cause I agree with everything Brian was saying, it, it feels like the most cohesive Star Wars story almost like it really does feel like it touches everything and there's so much for it to, to touch. And it is also this kind of very personal story. Like it's just, there's a central protagonist and just kind of a handful of characters that you get to know. And you're kind of seeing it all from that perspective, um, which I thought was really effective, uh, and just so much fun. Um, But yeah, so, so what, where did that story come from? How did it evolve? Like, yeah, what, what was the inception of Fallen Order storyline?
1: The seed of it goes back to, again, Stig, Asmussen, and Matt McNevitz, um, who came up with the idea of this David and Goliath story of a Padawan who survived the Purge, who then kind of picks himself back up a few years later and goes on to complete his training, go through a hero's journey, Mm -hmm. and, and go on this quest to rebuild the Jedi Order, um, as as Megan and myself got involved with it, uh, we wanted to really go deep into the time period that we're, like, our setting. Um, and one of the first problems that we talked about was, like, okay, we're telling a story before A New Hope, so we know what happens. Like, we, we kind of have the Rogue One problem, right, mm-hmm, of, like, mm-hmm. well, you know, we, we know what happens to these guys at yeah. the end of the movie. Um, so the challenge was, how do we make this a, a meaningful and valid story, given that constraint? Uh, and, and it ended up being, you know, once we looked at it long enough and more of an opportunity than a, than a limitation, uh, where we're going really hard into these dark times and what it means. Uh, and the game tries to ask the question of the player and of the audience, you know, what does it mean to be a Jedi now that the Jedi are fallen? Um, so that was kind of the the point of departure, I think, for me that I remember looking back on it, hindsight being 2020, uh, <laughs> as to what what where the kind of the core of the story idea started to to branch into, you know, everything else.
3: Which, by the way, I watched Rogue One last night. And as soon as K2SO showed up, I clenched a little because I thought I was going to have to fight. Him. <laughs> oh, my God. Don't let
1: him hug you.
2: <laughs> In the vertical slice, by the way, that fight unwinnable it was so hard oh my god it was like the first thing i played when i came onto the project and i was just like oh no so what
0: is so what does vertical slice mean actually for people that aren't familiar with that term so
1: a vertical slice is a term for a demo in a game where ideally all the ingredients that you're experiencing inside the vertical slice are of shippable quality Okay. So it's it's like a uh, at least in theory they're never truly sure. this way, right? <laughs> but you're seeing a very small small slice of the game, but vertically it goes all the way up to a hundred. Right. So so it looks like final art. So if you were to sort of look at that vertical slice and then imagine, you know, instead of it being an hour long, or I think ours was about three hours long, it was. By far and away, the most impressive vertical slice I've ever experienced. Mm. <laughs> uh, you can imagine the entire game. You'd be like, "This is what we're going to get." If you're, say, a, a video game executive, gotcha. Uh,
0: looking at that, yeah. And so, is is that like kind of the first thing you try to get right? Like, does that happen before even the rest of the story is put in place? It
1: depends on on team by team and project by project, because okay. every team has their own process. Um, you know, some teams might have the story kind of uh, locked more than ours was. Probably many (laughs) teams do at that point in time, Um, but others may not. You know, for some story may come super super late. Mm -hmm. Uh, It all depends upon what where you're going to put your resources and your emphasis before you do the vertical slice though. In in game development, you're probably going to have a a period of pre-production where you're going to be inside little like call them gyms or test levels where developers would work out features for the game and sort of, like, look at things in isolation. So you could have, like, a uh, imagine, like, the Matrix, right? Sort of, like, whoosh, <laughs> you load into a room, and it's you and a bunch of stormtroopers. And that's that's our lightsaber combat. And somebody's working on that kind of in a box and mm-hmm. kind a of vacuum a little bit by themselves. And they're checking in with other departments, trying to see where things are going on to make sure that they're not moving their feature in a direction that's not going to be in line with the rest of the game. Mm-hmm. But everybody's kind of doing their own thing. And then the vertical slice or, or demos like that are where things kind of, play, playable demos are where things kind of come together and everybody sort you sort of see it's like the band coming together and then you have that first jam session and then you figure out how you need to adapt everything in order to to make it sound good
3: that's such a great analogy because <laughs> <laughs> i've been in bands <laughs> it's like i know that <laughs> feeling like i worked so hard on this and then we got together and it's like oh right if we yeah. play this at the same time it doesn't work okay
1: and that's really like kind of going back to the rolling chaos thing or mm-hmm. sort of like the process of story development and games and how it's a bit stop start and how we're editing things all the time it's just like that you know we could have a beautiful story arc planned out but if it doesn't work for what the player is going to be doing in that section of the game we have to kill it you know Mm -hmm. or or, same happens to other departments as well it's this kind of like rolling negotiation and trying to figure out what's the best experience going to be for
0: the player right beyond the screenplay is sponsored by skillshare make 2020 a year where you explore new skills Deepen existing passions and get lost in creativity with Skillshare's online classes. What you find might surprise and inspire you. Skillshare is an online learning community for creators, where millions of people come together to take the next step in their creative journey. On Skillshare, you can find thousands of inspiring classes on topics including design, photography, video, freelancing, and more. For example, I recently enjoyed Brandon Wolfel's class, Instagram-worthy photography, shoot, edit, and share. As a filmmaker, I usually think about using the language of film to tell a story over time, so I've always been amazed by photographers who can tell a story in a single frame. In Brandon's class, he walks you through how to have a casual but creative photo shoot that can help you learn photography basics and inspire new ideas. Watching his videos inspired me to go out and do a for-fun shoot with some of my friends, which, honestly, I don't do enough of and I want to do more of this year. So if you're interested in exploring your creativity, head to Skillshare.com slash Beyond the Screenplay to get two months of premium membership. Once again, that's Skillshare.com slash Beyond the Screenplay to get two free months of premium membership. Thanks to Skillshare for sponsoring Beyond the Screenplay. So it sort of sounds like the general process is everyone working on their own thing, bring it together, check in, go work on their own thing, bring it together, check in and kind of slowly getting closer to the final piece and then like what is what are the last weeks like? Like when you finally like what is it like when it's like okay, we have to ship the game and like put it all together? What's that experience like?
2: Yeah, it is. It is crazy. And it's interesting, too, because it's different for different departments. So, for instance, for us in narrative, we have like VO lock, which has to happen Mm -hmm. generally much before um, the rest of the developers are done working because we have to um, get all of our VO re-recorded for localization. Um, And that has to be done before certification. And so you have, like, these kind of... Do I need to define those terms a little bit? Sure. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So basically, localization um, are a team that translates the game into other languages. So they'll do the VO recording in other languages as well as the text translations. But the VO has to happen first um, because they also have to cast those characters for the other languages, of course. Um, And then certification is a process that the, like, first-party consoles use. Um, Steam, I think, also has a certification process, but it's much, like... It's a little bit more lax. Whereas like the Xbox One, PlayStation 4, they're like quite intense. Actually, I think Nintendo is the most intense, but we didn't ship on that platform. Um so you really, really want to make sure that your game is super polished before cert. Um and so that happens because you have to pass cert in order to publish on those consoles.
0: And how do you pass cert? Is there's they're playing and make sure it all works and is yeah. put together or yeah
2: basically like a largely bug-free experience and then there's okay. also some like uh trc checks which are basically like when i press the xbox button does it do what it's supposed to do and mm-hmm. things like that that are kind of platform specific
0: mm-hmm. yeah the, that's interesting to think about there's all those other elements on top of like some again i'm coming at it from a movie standpoint where it's like once you finish the movie it is kind of what it is and there's like maybe other like standards you have to export it as but then it's done but because it's interactive there's all these other points of like stress i imagine of like making sure it all works mm. um yeah cuz i was asking cuz i was i i was like the editing process in filmmaking because that's when it all kind of finally comes together and you realize okay this thing that we've you know we wrote the script and spent a bunch of months shooting it and then we Finally put it all together and it's like, oh, this is a story. And then like you put the music in and the sound mixing and like suddenly it's a movie and that's always a really fun feeling. Um, so, yeah, that's I was curious what that if that happens in game making.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, there's there's sort of a, a long phase where the game is playable in chunks or you might, you know, run through a level and it looks almost done. And then all of a sudden you turn a corner and oh, gosh, there's nothing here, <laughs> uh, depending upon upon the production and and, and the process. Uh, but there's usually a phase where you're, you know, going in and, and before things are really locked or even a little bit after lock for things like VO lock or localization lock and you're sneaking in lines here and there, you're tweaking things, we're making cuts to cinematics or editing cinematics up mm. until when audio needs to um, really like do the music and scoring for that, that usually locks that down finally. Uh, and the gameplay is changing as well. So there's all these different things happening and then... In games, also there's bugs that we have to deal with, which is a huge part of that process. Of like, oh, this we need to you know resolve these issues to have a good playable experience. Um, and probably you know the, the the vast majority of that pressure lands on our production team and on our game director, who are sort of like in these triage meetings, looking at the status of the game every day. And you're shooting for perfection, but you're trying to you know how much do we push to put new stuff in that's going to make a positive impact. And how much do we focus on not putting anything in, not making any changes and making our experience more stable and smooth for
0: players? Interesting. Kind of so getting back to sort of the the storytelling, one of the things Brian and I were talking about was the we thought the the flashback like mechanic was such a cool way of giving exposition and kind of establishing you're teaching the player things and while the character is also remembering and learning and there's just a nice confluence of the narrative is being moved forward and also the player's experience is being moved forward and it's providing this awesome backstory and it like the flashbacks even have an arc and have a really fun payoff. So I'm curious how early was that part of the process and, and what was the, the thinking behind I don't think that.
1: that was especially early. I think that was a kind of mid to late
0: change.
2: It, yeah, it was definitely late because yeah. for a while those things were very disconnected. Interesting. Um, and I think it was actually your idea to connect them um maybe you were mad i can't remember but yeah that that actually that ended up working really really well um because we were finally able to like understand those a little bit better of like what they needed to do and were doing for the story as well as for gameplay
0: so like what parts were disconnected like the flashbacks but they weren't so where we started with
1: this project was the you're going to acquire certain abilities at certain locations to move through certain physical gates in the game world. Okay. It's very design-driven. Like, mm-hmm. at this point, you, know, you can fly. Uh, you know, the Jedi can't fly. But yeah. mm-hmm. uh, and then we, you know, kind of fell on narrative to... more on narrative than other teams to sort of contextualize that and make it fit into his hero's journey in the story. And then there's this other X-factor of the Force and how did Jedi learn abilities and powers? And and that was a very uh, complicated process of learning how to really realize the force in a way that felt 100% Star Wars, but also felt really, felt really satisfying from from a game progression standpoint. You want to get that new new ability in a game, see the UI pop up, and then go use it and feel like you're empowered, right? And we really wanted all those things to kind of, again, converge together, I think was overused used in a harmonious way. And we knew we had the the backstory with Cal's mentor, Gerald T'Pol, and we knew, I think it before we really locked down the format of these things that he was involved with these but yeah. at various points it was like more of an active thing where like his ghost is coming out and as it's not his ghost mm-hmm. but like yeah. you have a vision about him so it's cal kind of in the moment as as an adult um going through these challenges or doing things uh and there was a little bit of an inconsistency where like maybe one he's young and another one he's old and we sort of had to like you know, just iterate through it. Iteration is is everything in video games. Uh, <laughs> to the point where we saw, oh, okay, here we go. We're going to introduce Jaro early in the game, so that you know who he is. We're going to establish a relationship with him as this sort of like terrifying figure who who scares Cal in the train vision, and then you're periodically going to check in with him, and you're going to see young Cal's relationship with him, and then that's going to pay off in the Order sixty six moment, and in the then in the kind of like a uh, dark dark breaking of Cal immediately afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, so once we saw that kind of lined up and it took a while to get there uh it, it we knew we were, we were to a good path I love that uh that
3: sequence you know just the fact that you start in the hallway and you're like oh why aren't we just in the training room yet and you're just like talking to the stormtroopers and they're your buddies and you're like hey man how's you know and then I love that once you get out, up to Jaro Paul, the order 66 happens just sort of in the background like you almost don't even notice what's going on and then suddenly like all hell breaks loose and I just thought that was such a cool piece of storytelling
1: for me, that, that whole sequence is probably the heart of the game. So I'm yeah. uh, I i just I'm, I'm so happy with the team that realized it. Um, a level designer, a narrative designer on our team, basically operated as a level designer on the project. She had a level design background named Jessica Campbell, um, and she worked on the flashbacks and Order 66. And it's just, yeah, I'm very, very happy with yeah, that. turn. that's now. awesome.
0: Yeah. When it's such, it's like, it's a great way to make this big thing that happens so personal. Like, I feel like that's always one of the struggles in storytelling is when you're trying to convey this epic thing that's happening and has all the significance one of the best ways is to make it personal so you understand to the person what this means and then you can kind of extrapolate right and it was yeah it's such a great example of that of like you know we know what order 66 is from episode three but i feel like i felt it so much more because of right. the time investment and the flashbacks that happen.
3: Episode three, it was a montage, and like some of the Jedi, you didn't even know who they were, and that kind of thing. And this was just one character who loses his mentor and then is dealing with it,
1: you know, 10 years later. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I think, the power of video games and interactivity is that you become young Cal in that mm-hmm, moment, mm-hmm. and that kind of really allows a certain different experience through it um, for you to sort of feel like it's happening to you, and it makes it very personal. Uh, definitely.
0: And it felt it feels like the game is very unified, like thematically around this. Like all the characters are kind of struggling with this thing that happened. And I'm I'm always curious how much theme plays into different people's process. And so, yeah, was that something? Like, do you guys have conversations about theme early on? Is it kind of a thing that organically emerges as you're working? What's your kind of relationship with theme?
1: Because there was this uh, early structure for a story before megan and i came in we had to find it in an exploratory way i think because there was something there that we were kind of chipping away at or digging through in order to find sort of what we wanted to bring out as a primary themes Mm -hmm. but there was definitely conversations long conversations and arguments (laughs) about about theme uh uh, all the way (laughs) through development
2: uh yeah i mean it, it definitely was uh an important part of it uh we talked a lot about um the ideas of like Persistence through failure. That's a big thing for like basically every character fails in some way. Um, and basically how they have to get past that or get through that. Um, we talked a lot about just the general sort of idea of trauma um, and how it doesn't really leave you, but how you still sort of have to process it. And we see the characters process it differently. Seer processes it, for instance, through the lens of an adult and someone who made a decision as an adult, whereas Cal processes it as a child um, and someone who's now older and has become an adult but has lived with that from the very beginning and it looks very different for the two of them. Um, so, yeah, those things were very prominent. Um, I also was always like family, but Aaron was less like... <laughs> that was one of the the theme disagreements, yeah. But, you know, um, the idea of, I think, being connected and... Um, having that be like very important I think is is definitely there.
1: We we see it in the game where Cal is uh and I think we we the bridge that, that we found between say the theme of failure and the theme of family is trust. So Cal's learning to trust himself, Sir's learning to trust herself. They're also learning to trust each other. So that's kind of where we found a a a way to have those two different arcs or directions kind of like play back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah between characters. Yeah and it almost
3: feels like that becomes it's like the plot of the story is about the, this list of the four sensitives and everything. But then it almost feels like the, what you're left with at the end is exactly what you said, that they trust each other and they are a family at the end. Like, where, where are we going next? You know? <laughs> um, cause I was thinking about, you talk about the rogue one problem. And I thought, I think it's interesting to set a story in between two trilogies where we know the big picture of what happens before and what happens later. And, you know, the, the choice at the end, I wonder how much this is a narrative sort of mandate, the choice at the end, they destroy the holocron with the list of the four sensitives. And I was thinking, like, it feels like such a major thing to have this list, but in order in order to, like, not screw up what... The original trilogy is you can't have them be like, and then they all, you know, formed and they made a new Jedi order and, you know, (laughs) um, so I, but I was thinking the weight of, and it's sort of Rogue One does this too, the weight of if they failed at their plan, then things, you know, horrible things happen. So you are very invested in them not failing, but then to succeed at the plan is to sort of make this status quo the to succeed at the plan isn't to make some major change in the universe to succeed is to basically quiet this list and then say back to normal you know so how much um, i guess my main question is how much was that basically finding the balance between not changing too many things in the world but
1: also making something that making a story that feels important and big yeah i think we're really into that Mm -hmm. (laughs) i think it's something that we struggled with over the opening section of working on Fallen Order, and now mm-hmm. we're we're really into these dark times. And I think we have a crew of people who we're excited to explore more stories with. Mm-hmm. And this is a really fascinating period in Star Wars history. So there's you know there's a, a whole lot of potential there. With the the list of Force Sensitive's, we do try and establish that like the second sister would get it right eventually if if you fail right. So you do avert some disaster there, mm-hmm. right? Of mm-hmm. the Emperor like you know chipping all these kids or killing them or bad things happening to them. Uh, at the same time, yeah, we, we want to preserve the status quo because we can't change what happens in A New Hope. Right. But uh, Luke isn't on that list. But, you, you know, I always imagine when Cal is looking at, at that sort of galaxy map at the end and he's seeing those little points of light which represent the Force-sensitive children, that, mm-hmm. like, one of them is the one who's eventually going to, you know, uh, be the new hope, right? right. So th- that still has meaning, I yeah, guess, yeah. but it took a while for us to, to really work through that in a way that made it to, I felt like it paid off.
3: Yeah. So. Yeah. I thought it was really impressive that basically to say <laughs> the thing that they're setting out to do, they sort of make that choice to, to destroy it. And instead of feeling deflated by the ending, I just felt happy. I felt like, cool, <laughs> like great. That was a good decision. I totally agree with it. I'm on board with why you made that choice and I'm, I'm excited to go off to the next adventure now.
1: Part of that too. I think we needed to have that sequence where Cal has, so he, he, goes through cordova's test he gets the astrum he goes back to to Mm -hmm. and then he has that experience in the vault which sort of shows him what will happen if he gets what he's wishing for right and Mm -hmm. i feel we really needed that otherwise that choice at the end was going to ring hollow for people who wasn't who weren't picking up on all the subtext. Mm. That's kind of in that in that premonition sequence. We come out and say, "Hey, here's what's going to happen. Here's what Cal's dealing with, mm-hmm. both inside himself and what's going on in the galaxy." So right. I feel that it was really important to making that ending work.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was a really great moment, I think, of emotional maturity for Cal as well, because he looks at this and he's like, "Well, I can take this power. I can do this thing, um, but by doing so, I'll also be taking away the choices of all these children, in the same way that the choices were taken from me." from Trilla, from Marin, So they represent sort of a whole sort of generation of people who had their choices removed from them by the Empire and the Clone Wars in some shape or form. Mm-hmm.
1: Or, or even the Jedi. Yeah.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah and, and that sequence is such a, I think that's a great example of what games can do or like how, how a, you were talking about the, the sequence where Cal's sort of saying what could happen if he took this power and I, that's a it's fun to see that kind of sequence in gameplay because you know in a movie it might just be like a montage or he like sees visions but to be physically moving through the spaces and seeing it uh like feeling like you're there i think it is this kind of interesting you're affected by it in a way that i think you aren't when you're just watching it in a movie Hmm. um and i also just think it's it's such cool story design that it's you know, it's this video game where you're trying to find this list of things, and it's like kind of almost a MacGuffin thing, where it's like we're trying to get this thing, and like all video games kind of have something like that. You could say it's MacGuffin. Yeah, yeah and, but but it's like it's used so well because it's you know what the story is actually about is the things that our characters learn on the journey to find the thing, and then by the time they find it the way they feel about it has changed and the way we feel about it has changed. And like, it's just, I'm basically just saying it's really great. (laughs) And just like how it was built into the gameplay and how you evolve. It all worked really, really nicely.
1: Yeah. The Holocron list was definitely our uh, bridge to star Wars. It's our version of the death star and rogue one. Mm. Um, But I think you, you hit it there for us. The, the the story is these characters and what they go through um, and how it marks them along the way for sure. I think that's what people come away caring about the most. the The list is there as a vehicle. It's right. it's not, you know. If you're if you're thinking about the list six months after, I feel <laughs> like I failed. You know? <laughs> right. yeah. um, we want you. We want you thinking about Grease and BD One and Yattle yeah. and you know sort of <laughs> Hey everyone, it's Alex. Just wanted to take a quick moment to thank you for listening to Beyond the Screenplay. If you like the podcast, we'd really love for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, as it helps us to grow the show. Also, if you want to help us continue to make these episodes, you can become a patron on Patreon. For $2 a month, patrons get patron-exclusive Q&As and extra mini-episodes like our opening weekend reactions to The Rise of Skywalker. Anyway, back to the episode.
0: One question I just had is as far as, like, casting, like, is that something you guys are involved in? Yeah. Like, the casting is amazing. Um, Can you talk about what that process was like, kind of how you... Like, are you thinking about people when you're designing the characters or kind of what that process is like?
1: To sort of speak back to of how we, we came together as a team globally on the, on the Star Wars team, but, it's, but maybe especially in narrative very rapidly over the course of the project, we were casting hot. Like we were kind of building the bridge as we were running across it the entire time on this mm-hmm. production. Um, so that was very interesting where we had a couple rounds of casting sides that were, let's say, off target. And we had to do, uh, you know, sometimes you'll call back with the same performer who ended up getting the part. And we were kind of like dialing in who the character is um, along the way. But one thing that's interesting about our casting process is that we uh, didn't assign or sort of predetermine any kind of ethnicity um, for any of our characters. Mm-hmm. So we, we insisted on our, our uh, casting team, just show us people like, mm-hmm. here's this person's personality find performers who can can do that sort of thing like there's age in there as well um and in most cases gender uh but we we pushed for that um just sort of like we don't we don't care yeah um and that was really problematic actually it was really tricky uh Hmm. casting doesn't work like that (laughs) right looking for
3: a
0: person (laughs) (laughs) open auditions tomorrow and so once it was cast like did that kind of change the characters at all and how so
1: i think all the way across the board um uh every performer brought their own personality to the part and they all did a fantastic job and it changed every character um sometimes in ways more meaningful than others uh, but we found the final version of each of these characters inside the,
2: the person who was realizing them for us yeah it's another collaboration you start to hear the way that someone speaks and you start being able to write that um and you start to really just associate like sometimes i would accidentally call deborah seer um, you know what I mean? Like you just start thinking about them as this person and it makes a whole lot of difference in terms of like, okay, we have this character who is named Seer and this is what she does and this is how we think about her. And then you have the person who is Deborah come in and just give this performance where you like can't look away from her and she's incredible. And you're like, oh my God, I'm a hack. <laughs> 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 but like, it's it's really so amazing to like hear someone elevate the thing that you've done and just make you want to like write the best possible thing to give to that person.
0: Mm I
3: had a weird um, like just VFX moment where I as soon as she showed up I was like I recognize her from the Wolfenstein 2 trailer. I didn't even play (laughs) the game. I'm like, wow, we live in a world now where I can recognize an actor from a different video game I saw them in. And then my girlfriend walks in the room. She said, oh, it's the kid from Shameless, like immediately without even a a second. I was like, wow, okay, that's where we are
1: now. Another huge part of of how those characters changed from the page to the game, let's say, would be uh, our performance director, Tom Keegan, who actually directed the Wolfenstein uh, game cinematics as well. Um, who is a actors director and he had a huge part. He worked with us very intensely on digging through every line of the script, which is a long script, mm. uh, and making sure that he understood everything that was going on inside the internal worlds of all these characters, and then working with the performers to kind of help them get it. Um, he was such a huge part of the process, and for sure, it wouldn't have been uh, it wouldn't have turned out as well as it did without without his involvement.
2: Yeah, Tom is incredible.
1: Yeah,
3: that's really cool. I feel like so many. I feel like to this day, people still think that you know, cinematics and stuff are just what happens between gameplay.
0: <laughs> like, it's just, like, something you have to paste on. It's like, no, people have to work really hard to make those things happen. And, like, and the performance comes across so, like, beautifully in the final game. Like, I feel like it's one of the best, like, renderings of this, like... Yeah, I, I was watching it, and it felt just like watching a movie. It wasn't. I didn't even have that kind of, you know... The game veil game filter. Of, yeah. Right, yeah, it was, like, just watching it completely engrossed in everything. So... I always like to talk to people about the writing process because I feel like that's something I'm always struggling with is trying to figure out like how do I make myself write what what are the ways I write best how do I design my day to be as effective as possible so I'm curious for each of you guys what does a day of writing look like on a day that you actually get writing done <laughs> what does that look like?
2: Um, So for me, uh, basically, I have this process that I do that I learned from my mentor, Brandon Kramer, um, who I worked with at Adult Swim. And he uh, I was once very much struggling trying to write a description for a show that I did not care for. Um, And he was like, write all the things you want to write about it, like do the satire first and then you'll have what you need, like you can go from there. So what I do is I wrote I write what I what I call um, shit post drafts um, where basically it's anything that comes out of my head. Um, so it's all jokes, it's all stupid, it's all references. There's like tons of cursing. There's like just all kinds of nonsense in it. But the thing that's really nice about that is that number one, it shakes off all those like heebie jeebie writer block kind of things. Um, another thing that it does is it forces you to approach a scene in a creative way that you might not have thought about if you were taking it really seriously from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And then the other nice thing is, um, and I've started noticing this even more now, once you know a character, you go from the kind of silliness and then they actually start to talk the way that they would as you're writing it. So you really can take something from that very first draft that goes into the final and then you just iterate, 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 um, because it's a super iterative process.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. Aaron?
1: I have a wildly different <laughs> process. Cool. I think every writer probably has a different sure. process across the world, uh, where I'm a little bit more, I, I, I don't know, I, I might describe it as more deliberate and methodical, um, slower, too, <laughs> where I know where the, I want, say, a scene to begin or end. Uh, I'm talking about scenes here. I'm not talking yeah. about like outlining. Yeah. Um, so I'll have an outline. I do outline. Um, so I know my... my points of entry and exit and I obsess over that stuff because I have a game design background so where a character's standing what state they're in what pose they're in like that's all stuff that I, I really need to be able to visualize mm-hmm. um, just to make the scene work otherwise I stop myself and that's procrastination right that's, <laughs> that's part of the process uh-huh. uh, and then I I go through and my first draft is typically pretty slow because I really want to find the uh, at least a version of what that scene's about inside. Um, inside it so if if there's a a change in a character that happens inside the scene I I need that to see that inside the first draft of the scene otherwise I don't feel it's complete doesn't mean it's going to be good or that we're going to keep it or that's going to be the same action that happens three drafts down the road but I need to sort of see that one moment or several moments that's critical to it before I can kind of walk away from it and move on Um, so there's a lot of banging your head against the, the wall for me Mm-hmm. Um, and pacing, and just kind of like locking myself in a room, and and kind of staring at it until it comes out.
3: <laughs> yeah, I feel I feel like those are the two sides of the coin of writing. It's just like the very rigid structure, but then also just the free flow and do whatever you feel like. We and with lessons from the screenplay and beyond the screenplay, like we will be on a Slack channel, just like coming up with titles, and then someone will say something stupid on purpose, and then we'll just start like making jokes. And then when you hit that moment, sometimes where you're like, okay, that's dumb, but what if we did this? And suddenly you have that moment where you're like, oh, I'm glad
0: we went on that. Like glad we shit posted. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like that's, that's one of the reasons I like to talk about it is because I think I've found that when I try to force myself to have a balance of kind of both these things is usually when like work actually starts to happen. Mm -hmm. And I think I naturally am kind of more like you, Aaron, where I'm very like intellectual. I'm going to sit down and like plot it out perfectly. And it has to like achieve all the things. But then I reach that point where I'm like, I'm not doing it so what do I do and kind of more recently I've been trying to incorporate like what you were saying Megan it's like I'm just gonna write I'm just gonna start throwing things down and it can be bad but it gets the brain going and then kind of like lets you have momentum to then return to what you were trying to do with this kind of new energy and maybe a new perspective so uh like what apps programs do write in usually we're getting nerdy now (laughs) (laughs) gotta get a little nerdy like are you pen and paper people i
2: always start with pen and paper um Mm -hmm. i really like that i um this goes back to the sort of how my process works in terms of um I'm a highly anxious person and i'm a highly judgmental person so like (laughs) i really need to (laughs) i really need to divorce myself from like that blank page that i see on a word processor of any kind Mm. um i i can't look at it first it like fills me with anxiety Mm. but a notebook is like very personal and feels very comfortable and like a friend so i can like start in there write like generally three to four drafts in my notebook and then take it to the screenwriting software that i'm going to use um, so we use Writer Duet in-house. Um, so that's been our primarily... What we've used for cinematics. We also have an in-house tool that um, one of our uh, tech designers, Dave, created. Um, and it's incredible. Um, Heckle is the reason that you have VO in our game, basically. Um, he created, like, this whole system. Um, and it the writing flow in there is very different. It's very... Um, scene oriented so in a scene looks very different in gameplay than it does in a script so in a script you would be like we're all having this conversation and that's the script whereas like in gameplay you know cal comes up and he interacts with something and then you and i fire off a couple of lines of dialogue and then we stop and then he goes over and says something to bd1 off of that and those are probably two different scenes um Hmm. that way we can like Author the triggering of things a little bit better instead of just like going uh, and playing it, playing like all the dialogue one right after another.
0: Interesting.
1: So for Fallen Order, we had Megan and myself, and then for the majority of the writing, we had two external writers, uh, Manny Hugopian, who uh, is from the Apex team, but he's moved to New York now, and uh, Matt Mcnivets. So we got people who are offsite, uh, in addition to a couple contract writers uh, who who kind of came and left during d- during the process. And Writer Duet allowed us to collaborate real time with people who weren't sitting next to us in the office. And so much of game development is playing the game in iteration that having a tool that allowed us to sort of work online together real time was huge towards towards hitting our goal as rapidly as we did. And then the tool that Megan described, Heckle, is our content management system. So that's where we take VO and, and text and we inject it into the game. Um, and it's a tool custom made for that. It's also web based. So you can have it up inside a recording session or if you're offsite somewhere and you want to write some stuff, you
0: can you can jump in and have a letter as well. That's really cool. The, I, so I always wonder for those like little lines that people are saying in the environment, like what's it like writing those? Like because I feel like with like a scene, there's maybe more of a goal you're trying to achieve. And I'm, I'm sure there is for those little lines, too. But I've just always wondered what it's like to sit down and write, you know. Two lines or three lines of that.
1: Imagine of that like report.
3: five thousand. I <laughs> yeah. well, because then there's also like the codex type descriptions and stuff like that. Is that you guys also, or is that yes? That was yeah. us.
1: That was mostly Megan oh. uh, between the two of us, at least. Who wrote wrote the data bank and, and
2: yeah, I'd say that. Matt as well. Yeah, Matt yeah. was probably the heaviest hitter on the data bank and then I went in and wrote some of them and then edited stuff. But um, yeah, definitely shout out to Matt on that one because he spent a lot of time and effort on that. Um, But, yeah, in terms of what it's like to kind of write those little scenes and things like that, um, the ones that are kind of in a level and you're kind of going through and BD1 and Cal are talking or something like that, um, you have to, again, be very collaborative with your level designer and the combat designers and, like, everyone else who's working on that level because you sort of have to make sure that there's space um, Mm -hmm. for that conversation to even occur because there's so many things happening in games and you have to account for player choice if the player hits a VO trigger here and then backtracks, are they gonna immediately hit combat and are you gonna miss that conversation? Um, so you have to be really, really cognizant of what's happening in the level. You also wanna make sure that there aren't sort of things happening all around that are gonna distract from what's, what's going on in your conversation. Um, so you have to basically be very aware, you have to be playing it. And it's really nice to play yourself um, and also then see how other people play it, because hmm. your experience doesn't necessarily match the player experience. So we talk a lot, I think, in games about the player experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and generally, I've seen a, a fallacy there of someone talking about their experience, mm-hmm. but that's not what the player experience is. It's some kind of weird conglomeration of everybody's, right? Yeah. Um, so you have to be kind of like a mind reader or like, you know, kind of prescient to try to figure out what are all the different instances of the player experience we can see here Mm -hmm. and how can I make this work for at least 70 percent of them or something
0: (laughs) right well because there's like the non-linear like you don't necessarily know what order people are going to be triggering different conversations and that just sounds dizzying
2: yes (laughs) but fun (laughs) it's like if you're someone who likes a lot of parameters um it's fun
0: yeah, I
3: thought it was a nice touch that we, uh, that, that like environmental storytelling, I always like that kind of thing. It's like you can either look at the environment and say, okay, here's you know people cooked here. Or then you click on it and then Cal says, someone cooked here. And then you get one or two sentences of something. And then if you go into the databank, then you can actually read the little mini story. And I thought that was a nice way to sort of whatever involvement you want <laughs> into the storytelling. And the fact that when you click on it, it gives you XP. So it actually motivates you to... To Tell yourself a little bit of the story, or to have Cal tell you what where you are and why you 're on this random planet that maybe doesn 't actually tie to the greater story that much, but you feel, oh, this place feels lived in, and yeah there 's a story here,
0: yeah yeah,
3: um, on the note of those the the sort of i don 't want to call them random planets because you know they're all they 're all obviously part of the game, but uh, I like what I love about Star Wars movies is that you get kind of three movies in one a lot of time, like oh now we 're in this environment on this adventure, and then now we 're over here. And I like how much there were these little, like, I was reading back through the synopsis of the game, like, oh, I totally forgot about the origin tree and the, you know, the flying creature. And then, you know, you're lego your way up a at <laughs> It's <just> a <laughs> badass God, moment. So cool. um, and, uh, and I guess um, the question is, like, how do you, and is this you or is this more of a game design thing to say, we're telling this one focused story, but we have to go to these other environments. And then, you know, how do we tie in Sagarrera and how do we tie in, uh, you know, Dathomir and the the residents of Dathomir and that kind of thing, like sort of taking these very um, almost disjointed feeling planets, but then tying t- them together in an organic way
1: into the narrative. It's a combination of sometimes we'll bring things to the table, but probably more often than not, there's like we want to climb an ATAT, right, <laughs> and then we need to work that into the story. Or Sagara is there, and and uh, we need to figure out how does he play into the themes of you know, failure and family and trust mm-hmm. and all those sorts of things. And, and how does he answer that question of what does it mean to be somebody who's lived through the fall of the Republic and, and the fall of the Jedi Order? Yeah. Um, so it's really a combination of, of both. Um, but happily, Star Wars is huge. So you can ride a giant bird up a giant tree. Right. And it kind of fits in the context of everything you're doing. Yeah. And, definitely. and it's sort of, you know, Megan, do you want to speak to speak to the relevance of the she bird?
2: Sure. Um, <laughs> I love the Shio bird, guys. <laughs> um, so the Shio bird is one of those things that is like um, you can tell that there was a developer, more than one in this case, who was like super in love with this feature and like really, really wanted it. So for um, for us, that was Robert Bloss, who's the level designer of the Shadowlands, um, and it was like Bloss and Sabina Rosgren, who's one of our narrative designers, and myself, just being like, let's make the Shio bird awesome. <laughs> Um, And also Adnan as well, because I consulted with him on the like BD1 healing um, for the Shiobird Bird cinematic and Mm. all that stuff. Um, So, yeah, we knew that the Shiobird Bird was a thing that was going to happen um, even before I got on the project, I believe. Um, So it was like, how do we tell the story? How do we make it relevant and how do we make it connect to the wider story that's going on? Um, And in doing that, it became clear that the Shiobird Bird represented... Kashyyyk the unmarred version of Kashyyyk Hmm. something that's been lost Mm -hmm. um, and something that feels free um, and of course very kind of um, exhilarating for Cal because he spends this kind of long walk through Shadowlands very upset with Seer um, upset with himself kind of questioning like did I bring the empire here would they have hit back at the partisan so hard if i hadn't been here mm-hmm. um and kind of having this moment of like what am i even doing this for is this stuff worth it can i even trust the people around me and it's this very low moment um so the shio bird sort of represents this thing that cal never really got to have which is like a, a real childhood because even when he was with the jedi the clone wars were happening um so he was he was in in war as a child yeah. um so he never really got that moment to just be a kid and like have fun and, and be happy with himself so the shio bird for him in the story is a moment of connecting with that past that's kind of been um taken from him and it goes back to the theme of choices and choices being taken from people um and you know there's a segment you can go to um there's a echo that is of like cordova and tarful talking about the Shio bird and you know that this is like a thing that's been here for a very long time and is connected with Kashyyyk's history so it's just kind of calling back to those things that are like marred and and kind of gone now that the empire is here
0: yeah and then the ninth sister shows up and makes it all it was very satisfying killing (laughs) her afterwards that was that was a good battle (laughs) um Awesome. Well, yeah, thank you guys so much for coming on the podcast. I really, like I said, really, really enjoyed the game and not even just like it was fun to play. And it was a good story, but it was a really good Star Wars story. And I, I like, I feel like it's become actually one of my favorites. Like it's such a cool... Yeah, just a good Star Wars story that's in the world, but not as like super connected to the events, but also extremely connected. It just balances all these things um, really, really well. And you guys did a really great job. Of okay. that.
1: Thank you so much. I think if about six months ago, I'd be laying awake, you know, at three o'clock in the morning thinking, what's the best result we could get for, from how people experience their narrative and that's probably close to it of something this is so Star Wars but it's also a new thing so yeah. thank you so much
3: it was also really satisfying because um, I grew up playing Jedi Outcast Jedi mm-hmm. Academy and like Force Unleashed were fun and uh, but it's just been so long for it's just been like a single player Jedi game where you get to run around with a lightsaber and do things so it was just very refreshing for that game to to be a good game <laughs> like in, and to be a good game in all aspects you know So um, so thank you to you and to Respawn for making a great game
0: yeah and I'm glad I got to have my purple lightsaber, too. was yes. <laughs> waiting for that. Very important. Yes. Um, awesome. Uh, where can people find you?
2: Um, I do have a Twitter. I don't use social media very often. But my my Twitter is at Coriander. Um, K-O-R-I-A-N-D-E-R.
1: And I'm just at Aaron Contreras, my first name and last name on Twitter.
0: Awesome. Cool. Well, yes. Thank you guys once again so much. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And we will see you in the next episode. Thank you. Thanks.